we're kind of coming to the middle of um, this letter now to the Ephesians in chapter 3. And so far, uh, what we've seen, in summary, I would say, is in chapter 1, we were told about God's uh, eternal plan to bring salvation to human beings. And then as he got into chapter 2, Paul began to show us that God was going to bring forth this salvation through his son, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to the earth. Um, who, he was a perfect man. He was obviously God. He lived a perfect life, fulfilling the law. And then he went to the cross. And when he went to the cross, he did that for us. He went to die for our sin. And through his death and through his resurrection, he has provided the, the way, really, for human beings to be saved. And of course, we saw in Ephesians 2, that people enter into that salvation through faith alone. Not through good works, but just believing in what Jesus has done for them. And of course, when that faith comes and people have this new spiritual life in their hearts, they enter into the church, um, this great um, temple that God has been building for the last 2,000 years. And so then last week when John began chapter 3, he was talking about this mystery that God revealed to Paul through grace. And, and it's important for us to remember what that mystery is because when the New Testament talks about a mystery, it's talking about something that can only be known if God reveals it. And what it was that God revealed to Paul was that both Jews and Gentiles would become the people of God on equal terms through the gospel, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that had not been revealed in its fullness in the Old Testament. It was, it was hinted at by the Old Testament writers, but God chose Paul to sort of fully reveal it to. And he did that in his grace. But then... Also, in verse 7, we saw, very briefly, uh, John mentioned this. He said that Paul became a minister for the gospel. And when he uses the word minister there, it means to be a servant. And so a good way of thinking about this is if you imagine a king who has a message to give to a certain people group, that king wouldn't give the message himself. He would get one of his uh, servants to come along. He'd say... I want you to go and give this message to these people and say exactly what I say. And so Paul is that servant. Paul took the gospel to the Gentiles by which they could enter into this mystery. So last week was about the content of this mystery and this week is going to be about Paul's ministry in the gospel and in this mystery. Now I have to say when I looked at the schedule about preaching in Ephesians, and I saw that I was preaching in Ephesians 3, I really had to take a big sigh. Because this is one of those sections of Scripture where Paul kind of goes off on one. <laughs> he kind of becomes quite self-centered. It's almost as if he becomes egocentric or quite arrogant about his 
ministry is about his apostleship. And as a Bible teacher, I'm there scratching my head thinking, how on earth is this relevant to 21st century Christians? But listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1. He said this, he said, Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. And what that's teaching there is that what Paul did in his life as he related to God, as he carried out his ministry, his apostleship, as he prayed, as he spoke to people, as he loved people, he was imitating Jesus. He was doing exactly what Jesus would be doing if he was alive on the earth. Paul was fulfilling what Jesus called every disciple to do, which was to deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow Christ. But look what it says. It says, imitate me, just as I also imitate Christ. And what that means is, is that as we look at Paul in these sections of Scripture, as he goes off on one and speaks about how he lived his life, how he did his ministry, how he did his apostleship, it has relevance for us. Because the way he did his life, the way he did his ministry, is him following Jesus. So we can learn things from this. These, we can learn golden nuggets about how we as well can follow Christ. So what we're going to see is as Paul serves in the mystery, we're going to see a reflection of how we live in the mystery. And we're going to see three things. So the first thing is in verse 8, where he says, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So Paul, in this verse, states very clearly that he, he was called to declare something. He was called to preach something among the Gentiles. And uh, the word Gentiles means non-Jewish people. And he was called to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. And there are two things there. There are these riches, and they are of a person, Jesus Christ. So what Paul was doing was he was preaching the spiritual realities or the spiritual truths that come from the character of Jesus, from his heart of love, grace, and mercy. And a good way of thinking about what Paul's saying here is from that word riches. And that word in the Greek means, like if you imagine like a treasure box that you dig up on a desert island and there's loads of gold coins there and diamonds and jewels. And the sort of picture that comes from this is, if you imagine you go to your ATM, you, you want to go and get some cash out, although that's probably going to become extinct in about 10 years. If you go there and you put your pin in and you say, I want to look at my balance, and you see there may be, I don't know, a few hundred pounds in numbers, and you think, I want to see what that looks like in physical reality. And in the old days, about 100 years ago, you could go along to a bank clerk and say, look, I want to see how much money I physically have. And he'd take you downstairs into the, the vault, and there would be your pile of cash and your pile of coins. And what Paul's doing is he is preaching, listen, the physical cash, the physical notes and coins of the bank account of Jesus Christ. And this is what he's been doing in Ephesians all the way through. He's talked about election in Christ. He's talked about 
redemption in the, in the blood of Christ. He's talked about an inheritance in Christ. He's talked about being made alive in Christ. He's talked about being in union with Christ. He's talked about going into the church of Jesus Christ. I mean, I could go on and on. This is what he's been doing. This is what he's been preaching. And there are two reasons why he was called to do this. The first one is that faith would come to people's hearts. What Paul was doing as he preached this unsearchable riches of Jesus is that he was in faith knowing that the word would go into people's hearts and it would bring full faith. This is exactly what it says in Romans 10, 17. Listen to this. It says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So the first purpose was that people would be saved. The second purpose that he was preaching these unsearchable riches is, for, is that for those who were saved, that they would develop this kind of longing to abide more in Jesus Christ. Do you know that that's the only reason that I or John or Joe or whoever else is preaching on Sunday morning gets up to preach this word? We get up to preach this word not because we want you to think that we are good speakers or think that we're the ones to follow. We want you to see the riches of Christ and go, wow, what an amazing truth that is that Jesus has done for me. I want to know him more. I want to abide in my Savior more. I want to abide in the one who has given me, given me these unsearchable riches that I have now as a believer. So there are two purposes for people to get saved and for those who are saved to abide more in Jesus Christ. But there's another application for us here and it's in that word unsearchable. You see that word there it means that the riches of Christ are they cannot be exhausted. You can never go to the end of the riches of Jesus. It's a bit like if you are studying a subject at university and you go to the library to the section on that particular subject and you start reading the books. And you read the books, you keep reading them, and you keep going back thinking, okay, I've nearly done it, I've nearly got to the end, I've nearly finished the section, and you never get to the end. There is always another book to read. And that's the same with the, the riches of Christ. You can never exhaust them. They are inexhaustible. And this is important because... What do you get if you have unsearchable riches and finite, sinful human minds? Well, you get what's happened in the church over the last 2,000 years. You get different systems of theology like Arminianism, Calvinism, covenant theology, dispensationalism. All of those things are not the gospel. They are different ways of viewing the gospel. They're not all perfect. And it's important for us to realize that because what we can do is we can start overemphasizing these systems and we can start preaching to people systems of theology and instead of bringing people to a person, the Lord Jesus Christ, we bring people to a system. And that's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is about a person. It's about Jesus Christ. It's not about a system of theology. And so this word, unsearchable, is a great leveler for all of us in here. We all don't have a perfect knowledge. We're all still on a journey, learning more about Jesus. And when we're preaching the riches of Christ, we have to start at the basics, that Christ was crucified for sin. 
that he rose again on the third day, that you enter into salvation by faith alone. And then as people are saved, the Spirit will lead them. The Spirit will teach them, as it says in 1 John, all things. If you're saved in this place this morning, the Bible says that you have an anointing in your heart. And you don't need anyone to teach you a thing because the Spirit is teaching you all things and will continue to do so. So that's what Paul was doing. He was preaching these unsearchable riches of Christ. But he did that from a heart, from a foundation. And we see that at the beginning of verse 8 where he says, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given. Now, when he uses that phrase, that he's less than the, sorry, that's a bit of a tongue tie, less than the least of all the saints, he's using a funny way of writing that in the Greek. It's as if he's thinking of lots of different things at the same time. It's as if he's saying, I'm the least of all the saints because I'm very short. Paul was quite a short man. I am the least of all the saints because I've got a very bad speaking voice. That's what we know about Paul. He's he's saying here, I am the least of all the saints because my surname, Paulus, means the least. I am the least of all the saints because I persecuted the church of God before I became a believer. He's just been very humble. He's been very honest about who he is in his own nature. He's not being self-derogatory or having issues with self-esteem. He's just being real. He's just being honest about who he is. But he says, even though that's the case, this grace was given to me to preach. So he knew who he was in his weaknesses, but he also knew the one who was giving him the ability to do what God wanted him to do. And it was through grace. It was through unmerited favor. Paul speaks about this kind of perfect balance of humility and grace in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 9 and 10 where he says the following he says for I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God but by the grace of God I am what I am and his grace towards me was not in vain but I labored more abundantly than them all yet not I but the grace of God which was with me Paul knew his weaknesses. He knew he wasn't able to do anything in his own strength, but he knew that God's grace was sufficient, that God's power through his grace was sufficient. And this is the kind of attitude that we need when we're wanting to witness Christ. We need this kind of humility, this kind of sense of, I really know how weak I am. But we also need to know how powerful God is and how much he really does want to use us. This kind of balance kind of avoids, I think, the extremes of evangelism. One extreme is what I like to call the legalistic, prideful evangelism, where you have people out on the streets, and I know they have good intentions, but they are sort of hammering people down. You must repent. If you don't, you're going to hell. All of that's true. But they're doing it out of legalism. They're not doing it out of love. Then the other extreme is what I like to call the passive, fearful evangelism. But this is probably more what I'm like, where you know you've got this track, and you go out on the streets, and you give it to someone, and you say, don't talk to me, just read the track, and God will speak to you. 
That was a joke, but anyway, that didn't work. Um, but anyway, this is the kind of balance we need between those two extremes. We need to know that we are weak, that we cannot do anything without God's help. We need to know that we don't have power to do things in ourselves, but God has. And he wants to give us that power. He wants to, in his grace, use each one of us to be like Paul, to give the mystery away through the gospel in humility, grace, and wisdom. So that's the first thing. The second thing that Paul did as a servant in the mystery is in verses 9 to 11. And I'll just read verse 9 first. It says, To me, I was called to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. So the second thing, the first thing was that he was called to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, but the second thing is that he was called to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery. And that word for fellowship there means, it's the Greek word koinonia, it means community. So in another way he's saying, I was called to make all see what is the community of the mystery. And in another way what he's saying is, I was called by God to lay down the doctrine of the church. And this is what you see Paul doing in the rest of his writings. Paul spoke much about the church. He spoke about the practicalities of church. He spoke about the sacraments of church, baptism and communion. He spoke about worship in church. He spoke about um, what brings us together as a church because we are born again and we have the same spirit within us. This is what he did. It was fulfilled in his life. It's written down in the scriptures so that any person in the world, if they want to find out anything about the church of Jesus Christ, they can go back to Paul's writings and read about it. And so therefore, all are able to see what is the fellowship of the mystery. But he then says that this, this um, doctrine of the church was hidden from the beginning of the ages so a bit like the mystery itself, the actual doctrine of how church works, what we're supposed to do when we gather together on a Sunday, how we're supposed to um, have communion together, how we're supposed to live life together, was hidden in the Old Testament. It wasn't really revealed. It was revealed to Paul. But he says there, even though it was hidden, it was created by Jesus Christ, because he says that everything was created through Jesus Christ. And the reason he says that is because imagine if you were given the task of writing down all the doctrine for the church. Imagine if everyone went back to say, I don't know, who should I pick on? Uh, Ryan Martin. Everyone goes to him and says, what's the church supposed to be like, Ryan? Ryan probably would be tempted to be a bit proud about that. I'm pretty good. God thinks a lot of me. He's using me to write down this kind of stuff that thousands, if not millions of people are going to read in the next 2,000 years. And what Paul's doing is he, he's saying, no, you don't look to me. Look to Jesus. He's the one that created this doctrine at the beginning of time. It's been hidden in the Old Testament. Yes, it's been revealed to me, but you need to go back to Jesus. He's being humble again. He was humble in evangelism, and he's humble in writing scripture and laying down doctrine. 
But then he comes on to probably the most interesting verse in this section, in verse 10, where he says that the reason he was given the doctrine of the church was to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. So what he means when he says that is that as he laid down the doctrine of the church in the scriptures, and as, as people over the next 2,000 years have read that, they've understood it, they've believed it, they've walked in it, that the manifold wisdom of God, which means the many colored varieties of God's wisdom, would be made known to this um, to these principalities and powers in the heavenly places. And that uh, phrase, principalities and powers in the heavenly places, is really only used in Ephesians, and it means angels. So what Paul's saying here is he's saying that when we're in church on a Sunday morning, or actually during the week at any time, when we're interacting with people in the church, when we're living our life out as we should do in the church, that we not only have a ministry to each other in sharing the love of Christ, we not only have a ministry to the people in the world, but we're also part of this cosmic show, this cosmic kind of play that's been going on for the last 2,000 years where angels have been watching us and learning from us things about the manifold wisdom of God. So let's speak about angels for a minute. Angels are spiritual beings that were created by God in the beginning. They were created for certain purposes. Uh, they were, uh, the purposes would be worshipping God and doing things in the world. They were created without bodies. That's why we can't see them. They have taken physical form sometimes and probably still do. But generally speaking, they're invisible. But what the Bible teaches very clearly is that God has held back from angels a certain knowledge. And that knowledge is to do with salvation history, how salvation works. And because of that, angels have, are watching our individual lives. As we've been saved and as we continue to change to become more like Jesus, he watch, they watch the church to find out more about salvation and about salvation history. I mean, you see that clearly in 1 Peter 1, where Peter says that angels long to look into the things of salvation. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians, where he talks about head coverings in the church. And he says that he wants us to take that doctrine seriously, although there's freedom in it, because of the angels. Paul himself thought he was being watched by angels because he says in 1 Corinthians 4, 9, For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles last, as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. And then he says something similar to, one, uh, to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, 21, where he says, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with, with partiality. So this is teaching that angels are watching us. They're watching us to learn things about salvation, to learn things about how God works in our individual lives to save us. 
about how God works in the church to draw us together in unity, in purpose, to see other people get saved and to grow, to be ready for Jesus to come back. But why has God done this? Why has God held back this knowledge from angels? Well, he tells us that in verse 11. He says that he has done this according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, does anyone feel disappointed about that reason? I'm being serious, I'm not joking now, but it seems almost just a bit nonspecific. He's not really given us any specific reason why God has held back this knowledge from angels. He just says, well, it's according to his purpose. It's kind of in God's heart. It's kind of in his eternal plan that he's had forth from eternity past to eternity future. It's not very specific in his answer. He just tells us, well, it's because God has decided to do it. It's according to his purpose. Now, I think the reason he does this here is because of the fact that he's trying to emphasize something about us walking in the doctrine that that Paul lays down. Because think about this. Was the only reason that God gave Paul the doctrine of the church to be that the angels learn about us, uh, learn about salvation, learn about salvation history? Well, no, that's not the case. There are many other reasons why God has given Paul the doctrine of the church. It's so that we can learn how to relate to each other in grace. It's so that we can learn how to evangelize properly as a church. It's so that we can learn to love each other more. There are more specific reasons why God gave Paul the doctrine of the church. But for some reason, he chooses here to give us a very non-specific reason for it. And I think that he's doing that because he's trying to teach us that when God lays down doctrine in the Bible, there are some times when we're not going to understand why we're called to do certain things. There are going to be times where we are called to be, to be obedient and we don't understand why that's the case. There are going to be times when we have to live out what it says in Deuteronomy 29, 29, where the writer says there, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So there are things in the scriptures that we don't fully understand. We don't fully understand why angels have to learn about salvation. But that's something that is in God's heart. It's a secret thing that hasn't been revealed to us. But even though that's the case, not just with this, but with other doctrine, we're still called to be obedient. We're not called to be obedient because we understand everything. We're called to be obedient because because of God's character. The Bible tells us very clearly that God is love, that God is trustworthy, that God is faithful, that God is good, that God is gracious and merciful. And because of that alone, we should be obedient even when we don't understand. Jesus kind of spoke about this in John chapter 6, verse 29. When he said, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. And if you remember the context of that, Jesus had just fed a lot of people miraculously, and there was a group of people that followed him because 
They wanted to be fed physically. They wanted to have physical food. They wanted to get their life sorted first physically before they believed in Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, no, that's not the most important thing. What you need to do is believe in me. If you believe in me, I will give you everything that you need. It might seem strange. You feel physically hungry. You might want food before me, but if you put your faith in me first, I'll provide you with everything. A good example that you believe and you have obedience in God even when you don't understand why. And so we see in this second section, brothers and sisters, between verses 9 and 11, that Paul laid down the doctrine of the church so that we could faithfully live it out so that angels could learn about the manifold wisdom of God and that we're called to do that in faithful obedience, even if we don't understand. Maybe the Lord doesn't want it to be listened to again. (laughs) Sorry about that, guys. So, going into our last two verses, the third and final thing that Paul wants to show us, I'll just read those verses. It says, In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him, therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. So, We've seen so far that Paul was called to preach the gospel. He was called to lay down the doctrine of the church. And in these two verses, we see that Paul endured the suffering that comes with being in the mystery for the glory of God. In a nutshell, what Paul's saying in these two verses is he said, look, don't worry about the fact that I'm in prison. Don't worry about the fact that I have many tribulations and many sufferings because it's leading to your glory. What is your glory? Well, that's in verse 12, where it says that because of Jesus Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. We're able to go to the Father and have a relationship with him because of Jesus. That is our glory. Let's just stop there for a minute and remember that one fact. What do you think is your glory in your life as a believer? There's one thing that is your glory. Is to know God. It's to have a living relationship with Him. It's not your lifestyle. It's not your happiness. It's not uh, material possessions. It's knowing God through Jesus Christ. That is your glory, brother, sister, in this place this morning. And Paul has been growing that glory in his Ephesians because of what he's writing in this book. And he's saying, look, because I'm in prison, God is using my suffering, he's using my tribulation, and I'm writing this epistle to you in the midst of being in the worst place in the world. So don't worry about me, because this is leading to your glory, which is to know God. Paul was definitely a man, brothers and sisters, who knew what it meant to suffer. He knew that every Christian 
who lives a godly life will suffer in some way. Because he wrote in 2 Timothy 3.12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Paul was a man who knew that even if God allows you as a believer to suffer, that he will bring good from it, whatever it is. Because he wrote in Romans 8.28, a very famous verse that we all know. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. This is why he can say these things to these Ephesian believers. This is why he's like, don't worry about me. Because my imprisonment, my tribulation is leading to your good. But the one thing I want you to see from these two verses, and this is the application that I feel the Lord wants to bring out, is very simply, what is Paul doing with these Ephesian believers and what are they doing with him? They are being honest with each other about their suffering. Paul is being honest about the fact that he's going through tribulations in prison. These people are obviously concerned about him. They're being honest about their reaction to his suffering. They're being honest, they're being humble, they have got integrity in the midst of great persecution. And I think that God used this honesty to help them to grow in being able to persevere in suffering. Because the Bible says clearly in Proverbs 3.34, Surely... God scorns the scornful, but he gives grace to the humble. And the New Testament writers reinterpreted this, that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. When you're humble about your circumstances, when you're honest, when you're real, grace some, it does something. Grace seems to sort of well up within you and give you the ability to persevere and endure through anything that the Lord allows you to go through. So I want to ask you in this place this morning, if you're suffering, are you being honest about that? Are you being humble about the fact that you are suffering? And I understand that in the 21st century church, it's difficult to talk about suffering because Christians don't suffer anymore in the 21st century church. Everything should be happy and good all the time. There's no need for you to have suffering. If you're suffering, you're not really believing. If you're suffering, you've got a poor faith in the Lord. So I understand that it's difficult. I understand it's difficult to be honest because maybe you feel scared that I or any one of us in this place is going to judge you for where you're at. But I want to encourage you, please be honest about your suffering because that is the place, that's the ground where grace comes and God empowers you to be used in that suffering for not only your good, but other people's good. And for those of you in here who are trying to counsel someone in their suffering, are you being honest with that person about how you're receiving that? Because again, that's where grace comes to empower you to counsel that person. So, in summary, to end the message, Paul brings out three things in this text about what he did in his service in the mystery. He preached the gospel, he laid down the doctrine of the church, and he allowed the suffering that comes with being a believer to bring forth good in other people's lives.
And what I want you to remember, what I want you to, what, what I want you to take away, is in the, each of these three things, he was humble. He was real. He was honest about who he was in the Lord as he preached the gospel, as he laid down doctrine, and as he suffered. And I really feel the Lord wanted to say this at the end of the message, that this kind of character of humility, this kind of character of being real and honest about who you really are as a believer in Jesus Christ is where he wants to take you this morning. Because the character of humility is one of the central characteristics of being part of the mystery of the church. Because you can't enter that mystery in pride. You have to humble yourself before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a sinner. I need to be saved. I need you. Save me. I believe in you. But also, as you carry on in the church, you yourself don't have the power to do anything for God. It is only him that can work in you. It's only him that can use you through his power. So you have to humble yourself again. And you have to say, Lord, this is about you. It's not about me. I want to humble myself and let you do what you want to do in my life and in other people's lives.